This episode is brought to you by Scribe. Scribe is my premium, high-level training for aspiring authors and accomplished authors. For a number of years, Scribe has been a live event. But recently, we've put the entire training online. So no more airfare expenses or hotel fees. No more face diapers. No more fear of catching a disease that was spawned by some guy who decided to eat a bat. <clears throat> you can watch the training videos and download the notes as well as the cheat sheets all from the comfort of your own home. Plus, you'll receive over $6,000 in bonuses, which includes a private Facebook group where you will receive further coaching and connect with everyone who has gone through the training in the past. Scribe covers everything from how to write a successful book, to how to finish it, to how to get it published, and the hard part, how to promote it so that people beyond your family and best friends will want to buy it. Head over to attendscribe.com. Attendscribe, all one word, dot com. And you can read all about it, including testimonials from those who have gone through the training. And we're going to talk about writing and you've been a best-selling author and hopefully you'll continue to be a best-selling author. And you just finished up a couple of weekends ago in late April, uh, your Scribe event. Um, how long have you been doing Scribe? Well, we started it in 2015 and uh, every year we've done it, it's grown. And this year we had, let's see, 70 registered, 20 had to cancel because of COVID or COVID-related issues. But we had 50 there, 50, 5 and, uh, you know, that was groundbreaking for us because it's a premium event. It's, it's not a cheap event. It's not inexpensive. But uh, you were one of the 50, Brian. Yeah, and it was fantastic. It was uh, definitely um, well worth the investment. I know you recorded it, so you'll be able to put some news up about how persons might be able to access the videos if they're interested. But I, I know from uh, my own perspective, and actually the people that were sitting at my table, uh, I I've really felt like the return on the investment came back the, the, the first day. I mean, you did this, it was essentially all day Friday, all day Saturday, and then half a day Sunday. I and mean, all that content, I felt like the first day I was there with my notes, I'm like, I got my money back already. And uh, <laughs> I think other people felt like that as well. I really appreciated the tips that you gave on writing, uh, on marketing, on even getting down into the nitty gritty on uh, selecting titles for books. So you just gave so much actionable uh, content, um, as well as you shared extra courses on how to blog. Uh, plus, the fellowship was fantastic with other people, and we had some small group activities, and you had a wonderful guest speaker there. So, how long did it take you, and what was your process in putting together all of your learning about writing? Uh, and what kind of, uh, what was the um, inspiration on that? Hey, I want to share these lessons that I've gotten so that other people mm -hmm. can do it as well. I mean, what, what's behind all this? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the provocation was the fact that over the years, as I have released books and produced blog posts, over the years, many, many people have either asked me, can you teach me how to write a book? Or I'm stuck. I have a book idea. I just don't know how to get it out of me. Anywhere from that kind of question to how do I get it published to, 
Uh, I went ahead and self-published a book. Now, how do I get people to actually buy it? I'm really discouraged. Hardly anyone's buying it. So that was part of the motivation. The other motivation is I've had people, for some reason, when you write a book and you're, you publish a book or you get a book published, people immediately think that you're an editor and you're a publisher. And so they start sending you their manuscripts, okay, or books. It doesn't work that way. You know, I'm not an editor. I'm not a publisher. So I wanted to also inform these people how they could do all of that themselves, that they don't have to have someone else read their book who's not an editor or a publisher, but how they actually can find an editor and a publisher, right? Or be given the tools so they can publish a book in such a way that people actually want to read it. So I just thought to myself, look, instead of trying to answer all these emails, which is impossible, people asking me those particular questions about writing process, how to overcome writer's block, how do you actually produce a book that people want to read, how do you publish it, how do you promote it, that's a big one. How do you market your book to where you know, you're not spamming people and uh, turning them off? So what I did, Brian, is I took several weeks and tried to evacuate <laughs> and excavate my brain on everything I had learned about writing, about editing, about publishing. And by editing, I mean, you know, the editing process, because I go through that with other editors, since I'm not an editor, but how to market it, how to promote it in ways that are effective and non-spammy, and the different publishing options. And so I would just sit by my computer and just write out everything I had known. I'd worked with five publishers, large Christian publishers, most of them in the Christian space, and all of them very different experiences. And so I added that, you know, what is it like to work with a publisher? And so this was a, a complete brain dump. And so it basically takes three days <laughs> to share it with people. As you know, you were there. And none of it's wasted. There was no padding, as you know. Everything that I shared was valuable and actionable. And it comes out of experience. You know, having written over uh, 13 books now, five publishers, and failing as well as succeeding, you know, I, I, I felt like it would be valuable to put on an event. Now, I also had a guest speaker, as you said, and she was phenomenal. Yes, New, York was. Time, yeah, New York Times bestselling author, Bridget Cook. But what we decided to do, having done this for six years, is we decided that we were going to put it on video, record it on video, that is, and then put it online. And so people can purchase it online. And then they get added to a Facebook group, a private closed Facebook group that has everybody who attended in years past. So it's one big family <laughs> of scribes, you know, learning from one another. I continue to coach through the Facebook group. It's been awesome. Listeners, whenever they hear this, they can go to attend scribe. That's one word, attend scribe.com attendscribe.com. It's a live event that's been recorded, okay? And they can go ahead and get it. Share with the folks, like I thought this was pretty impressive and, and uh, you, you know, continually all the way through it, you, you're, you're directing people to take action, which is the bottom line on finishing a book. But what's the success rate on people getting their books written within a year, um, you know, whether it's self-published or with a traditional publisher, what's that success rate? It was phenomenal that you said of people that have gone through the Scribe event. 
Yeah, we follow up with everyone who has attended a past event, and it's 98%. 98% of people who've attended Scribe or gone through it, gone through the training, end up finishing their book within a year and publishing it. Now, some people self-publish, but they know how to self-publish in such a way that the product looks just as good as a published book by a major publisher. I was floored when I began to learn this and see what self-publishing could do if you know how to do it right. And we give all the tools, of course. Yeah, 98%. And, and many get publishing deals because we walk you through the process. We also show you how to hit a bestseller list and give you the ingredients for that. But one of the most common responses that I've gotten from people who've attended, and this was echoed numerous times this year, Brian, as I was speaking to people who were there, they said, you know, I pay a lot of money for coaching. One person was spent $12,000 a year just to receive coaching from someone who's teaching her how to write a book and so yeah, forth. Coaching on book writing specifically. Yes, book writing. About, yeah. I'm talking about book writing, coaching, $12,000. Others are spending hundreds of dollars a year. They have membership sites to some of these groups for, for writers. And they're all good, I mean, from what I know of them. But here's the thing, <laughs> for a fraction of that price, okay, they attended Scribe and went through the training. And here's what all of them said who have been paying high dollars for coaching, et cetera. They said, I got more out of three days than I did any of these groups and any of my coaching that I've paid so much money for. And the reason they said is because you've given us a step-by-step -step plan a step-by-step -step process and we're not overwhelmed by it because apparently in some of these other venues and the coaching and, and so forth, there's just so much information that it becomes overwhelming, number one, but number two, there's no step-by-step -step actionable plan. And so consequently what happens is that it's almost like throwing just a bunch of information at somebody or maybe just throwing them a lot of tools and throwing them a lot of lumber and then saying, okay, now you go figure out how to build the house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I do. Yeah. And I, you know, and I was just going to say, I want to, I want to start talking about get down into the weeds on, um, on some of your own writing and take our listeners through some of your books. But I, I you know, I was just going to say, I think that the key piece that I just, uh, I've appreciated about your work and, you know, if, if anyone's just interested in reading your your blog, uh, it's frankviola.org, and you have so much stuff there. Uh, but, you know, the scribe, it wasn't like you were, it was no upselling. It was like you just delivered the goods, period, and they don't have to sit with you. They don't have to go to 14 scribes. You gave them the goods right there. And I thought, I appreciate that. There was no upselling. You didn't have a bunch of stuff sitting in the back of the room nope. trying to sell. I didn't actually see you sell anything, which is just really awesome. You just delivered. And so, Frank, and folks could just get a taste of your stuff at frankfile.org. But now that I have, it's such a gift to have a guy that's um, been, again, you've been best-selling author on several books. And you, like I said, you've done five major publishers. Let's talk through your discography. And I know you love music. And so you like to think of your, um, you like to think of your, you know, like you like to think of your books as an album within the chapter titles uh, as the songs, which again, there's a great insight for folks that want to write a book right there. Th go listen to some music and then uh, think about how an artist uh, puts the songs together to tell a story. So 
Can you talk through, again, I've written too many books to cover just on one episode, but if, if we just kind of go through some of your highlights um, and let's go chronologically, can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the different books? Because you have a variety of things that you've worked on and then maybe key learnings along the way for each one that uh, maybe you grew as an author. So, I mean, I know you're, you're one of your earlier books that you're very proud of. I mean, your website calls it your magnum opus, which is quite a word for an early on. This is written in, I believe, 2009, From Eternity to Here. That is, uh, I guess, that's one of the books I would put in the light category. Uh, Brian, I divide my books up into light and shade. And this is a term that some musicians have used for their, for their music, especially if it's diverse. I look at my catalog as books for abnormal people. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean people who cannot abide popular, shallow Christianity. People who know there has to be something more, something higher, deeper, and more sublime to the scriptures, to the Lord, to our relationship to the Lord, to church, just the whole gamut. And so my vision for crafting a library of books is to blend together the best of theology, devotional literature, deeper life themes, Jesus studies, historical narrative, and even Christian fiction, creating a new genre of Christian literature. That's been my vision, okay? Because I'm somebody that gets very bored easily, and I'm somebody who I guess it's just part of the wiring that, that God has given me, uh, for better or for worse. But if it's not new and fresh, I'm not interested. And by new and fresh, I don't mean that it runs contrary to Christian orthodoxy. I think that's one of the traps that some quote-unquote progressives have fallen into. They think that, well, to be new and fresh, we have to overturn <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. The, the history and the lineage of the Christian faith that's been given to us. And so they start questioning the theological tenets that all Christians in all places have believed of all times. I'm talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the triune nature of God. I'm talking yeah. about the inspiration and reliability of Scripture, you know, those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm very... Um, historically steeped in the major tenets of the Christian faith. None of my stuff runs against uh, orthodoxy. However, there is so much that I believe as Christians we have missed. And a lot of the journey, Brian, has been, and we've talked about this in close quarters, but I'm not finding and hearing answers that have been satisfying to me, going back as a young Christian, to complex problems not just theological problems, but practical problems in the Christian faith. And what I've noticed is that there's two impulses to that or reactions. One is people abandon ship and they leave the Lord. Yes. That happens a lot. In fact, I've, I've talked about it, written about it recently, when Christian leaders deny the faith. That's one reaction. The other reaction is to say, wait a minute, I'm going to keep pursuing because I know Jesus Christ is, is a real living person. I know he's resurrected. Hmm. That doesn't move. You know, even if I didn't want to believe that, I, I can't stop believing that. So there has to be something more, something deeper, something higher that goes beyond these questions that people ask. And, and the answers are so unsatisfying, right? So as I put it in, in one place, I said, all of these complicated questions that some of these leaders who denied the faith, they caused those leaders to leave Jesus Christ 
well, those same questions and complicated problems and seemingly unsolved issues caused me to find him. So basically, I divide the books up into light and shade. Light is books that contain the element of the sublime. These are devotional, inspirational, throwing fresh light on scripture and on Jesus Christ. And then the books that are the shade, these are books that contain a prophetic edge. They challenge the status quo. They seek to blaze new frontiers. So my catalog is divided up into light and shade. And I would say from eternity to here is light. And that book, it's not fiction, but it's nonfiction that's very heavily metaphorical. There's a lot of uh, imagery in it. And what I do is I trace God's eternal purpose, a phrase that comes out of Ephesians 3, from Genesis to Revelation. What provoked God to create? What was the motivation for him to create? And if you ask most Christians today, Brian, usually they say, well, you know, God's highest purpose is to glorify him, that man would glorify him and enjoy him forever. And I've always found that statement to be very weak and insipid. What does that even mean? Enjoy him. How? Glorify him. What does that mean? That's not a mind blower. When you dig deep into what the eternal purpose of God is, it is a mind blower. I mean, it is just, it take your breath away. And so that book, the origin of it, Brian, came out of five conferences I did in the United States on God's eternal purpose, different aspects of it. I had the messages transcribed, so they became notes. And then I used that as a springboard to write the book. And uh, I'm happy with it. I feel the Lord was, was with me in writing it. Interestingly enough, I don't even remember writing it. I have no memory of writing that book. (laughs) That's, that's cool. And then, then you wrote, I mean, your next, the next works we're going to cover is like, is your Jesus trilogy where you had a co-author. A lot of the, uh, my audience will know the name Leonard Sweet was your co-author for, for three books uh, just describe quickly those three books and then what you learned about writing from actually working with another writer at the same time. Yeah. Wow. We could we can spend yeah. a whole episode on both those questions. Yeah. 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 Uh, but very quickly, you know, Leonard and I connected, I think it was in 2009 and we both were very burdened uh, that Jesus Christ himself, the person of Christ was sort of being left out in the cold and everything else was being focused upon, you know, whether it's leadership principles or evangelism or making disciples or theology or, or whatever. I mean, you can, you can name the things that Christians get jazzed about where the Lord here is sort of forgotten. <laughs> and that's a, that's a real danger, especially for people who are in ministry, to put something other than Christ in his place to subvert Jesus and focus on something else, even though it's related to him. That's where it gets tricky. But evangelism, discipleship, those are not the equivalent of Jesus Christ. Those things are it's, I-T-S. Jesus Christ is a him, and we need a him, not an it. But anyway, we, we talked about this, and we, we decided to co-write this manifesto that we put on the internet called the Jesus Manifesto for the 21st century. And then Thomas Nelson approached us, and said, would you boys be willing to write a book on this? And so we went ahead and uh, put together the book, Jesus Manifesto. And that was fun to write because, uh, you know, we divided it up into chapters. We basically took the manifesto and turned the points into chapters. And uh, we said, all right, Leonard, you write these and I'll write these. <laughs> and so we basically put it together. 
two halves and seamed them together and then you had a full book. Then we had the idea of following it up with uh, a biography of Jesus, but one that was very unique in that we start out not in Bethlehem, but we start out before creation, John chapter one, and then also telling his story from the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, because he appears on every page. Brian, as you know, Jesus said, you search the scripture, but they testify of me. So where is Jesus in Genesis? Well, we show him in Genesis in prefiguration form, in types and shadows and and images. And then we took all of the work that we have come across and uh, we're aware of on Jesus studies. We blended that together with Christology. And so we have this book, we call it Theography. Instead of a biography, it's a theography. It's a story of the life of a God. And Jesus is in fact divine. He is the true God. That's what Jesus' theography is. That was a bit more difficult to write, but we, we did the same process. We followed the same procedure, Brian, in that we said, okay, here's a tentative outline. These are the chapters. I'll write these, Leonard, and you write those. <laughs> and then we just put it together and it was fine. Cool. And we edit each other's work too. I mean, it's yeah. not just a clean writing of chapters you know, that each of us engage in. We also swap the chapters and try to improve them. And then the third book, we had the idea and the feeling to make this a trilogy, you know? And so that was Jesus Speaks. And I talk about my hopes for that book at the scribe training. If anybody gets it, they could hear me speak about it. But it, it didn't perform the way, you know, I had wanted. We had a real hard time, Brian, writing that book because I think the vision we had going in was a bit different. So I wrote my chapters, Leonard wrote his chapters, and we didn't really have like a, a plan. It was just, let's just write. <laughs> and so Leonard wrote his chapters. I wrote my chapters. We didn't know how to put them together to make a book out of them. So we sent it to the publishers and we said, can you, can you tie these together? In some way, can they be sewn together <laughs> to create one volume? And the publisher and the editor, they tried, they couldn't do it. So they decided, let's make volume one, volume two. And so that's what it is. Jesus Speaks is volume one, which is, I would say, 90% Leonard, 10% me. And then um, volume two is 90% me <laughs> and then 10% Leonard. So you have two volumes under one cover. And I think that really worked well because Leonard gives the big picture, you know, all the places where Jesus speaks post-resurrection. Mm. You know, how does he speak? Well, what are the features of his voice that we can glean since his resurrection? And then I come in and I give real practical handles on how to hear his voice and how to distinguish it from our own thoughts versus the thoughts of the enemy. How can we sift through that and navigate it to where we can say, this is the Lord speaking to me. So that's what the book does. I think it could really help God's people, especially those who struggle with hearing the Lord's voice or who hear other Christians say, oh yeah, the Lord told me this and the Lord said that and the Lord told me that. And yesterday God spoke to me and said that. And they're thinking, well, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not hearing God? You know, why is he giving me the silent treatment? So we speak to that in the book and I think it will help people like that, but it will also help the people where God is popping up everywhere. You know, every 10 minutes he's telling them something and we have a word for those people too. (laughs) I think they need to hear. So anyway, 
Yeah. And in in the middle of that, you still put a couple of books out, including I think 2011, Revise Us Again. And uh, again, this is about uh, victorious about the victorious Christian life and some hacks on that. And, you know, your description, it's, in, it's, it's described as incredibly edgy. So uh, you come back with, uh, with this book in the, in the middle of the book she wrote was sweet. So what was inspiring you then? And, you know, what did your writing style change? Yeah, you know, I don't think my writing style has ever changed since I began writing. Now, I certainly think I've improved, but the style is pretty much the same. And Revises Again was provoked by just lessons I was learning about transformation, personal transformation, or what some people would call spiritual formation, but things that are rarely, if ever, talked about. I did a whole chapter on um, Christianese, okay? Mm -hmm things that Christians say. For example, let me pray about it, right? Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you ask me something and I say, let me pray about it, that's usually, usually code language for no. <laughs> Funny, my, my pastor when I was growing up, he, he would say, don't pray about it, just do it. Because he was playing exactly about that. It was like, don't just say no and pretend like you're being all pious. That's really funny, Francis. <laughs> you, put it, you put it in writing. Yeah, it deals with a lot of issues that revolve around our transformation that hardly anybody talks about. I've got to say the next book that I want to ask you about, I love the title. Out of all your books, I think it's my favorite title because it, it wasn't immediately obvious to me from looking at the title what the book was about, but it made me super curious. And that's your book, God's Favorite Place on Earth. Well, I'm glad you liked the title. Um, love the title. This particular place, and I'm not going to give it away. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, let, let people read the book because this particular place was the only place on earth where Jesus of Nazareth could lay his head. Remember, he said, The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests. But there was one small place, a very, just like Jesus, humble, obscure, not impressive, but it was the only place on earth where he could lay his head. And the point I make in the book after I describe this place and how much Jesus loved it is that all of us can be that place. All of us can be that place individually. All of us can be that place as fellowships and churches. All of us can be that place in our homes. And so consequently, you know, that's what the book is about. Now, what I did, I didn't just write it as prose. I put all of it the whole story in the mouth of Lazarus when he's getting old and he's now telling his story. And it's really a work of literature because there's no contractions in it. The way it reads, it's a lot of imagery in it. And then after Lazarus is telling his story, I go into the nonfiction piece where, you know, I make application, but it's, it's really not a, a Christian fiction book. It's more biblical narrative and um, I had Craig Keener, who is part of your tribe, to me, the number one New Testament scholar when it comes to first century history, he was my historical advisor. So I passed everything by him to make sure it was true to the first century, as well as to the New Testament. It is my favorite book. And what's funny about God's Favorite Place on Earth, Brian, is the most common response I've gotten from it is that people have wept while reading it. And wow. a lot of those people, most of those people are men. Mm. Yeah, I can't say that about any of my other books. But that book, for some reason, it's been a tearjerker 
among the male species. Well, I have to say, um, again, I, I'm not a, a weeper, but I've, you know, I haven't, I actually haven't read that particular book, but I, I think that one of your gifts as a writer and again, I'm guessing that you did some of this in that book is that you're able to really bring, I think you call it 3d reading yeah. of the scriptures right. and, and you're able to like bring text to life. And so I'm going to guess part of the making men cry is the fact that you're a dude yourself and that somehow you've managed to like write stories. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm not, I'm sure women might cry if they read them too, but it's, but I think that uh, you actually bring text narratives. Uh, it's, it's just remarkable to life. And so, I mean, that's one of the things about your writing style that I think people could learn from is that you, you can take a text and you're not over reading it but you make a person feel like they're in the story yeah. and, uh, and, and that, that's powerful. Mm. That's certainly my goal. And the Lazarus story, uh, the story of Mary and Martha, uh, all of what revolves around them, that little family, you know, was very moving to me. And so yeah. I wanted to put it in writing in a way that was fresh and new, different, you know, to tell the story accurately, but to tell it differently. And, and that's what moves us. I mean, I think what moves the human heart is if we could see Jesus anew and afresh, and we, we feel like he's come to life, you know, from the pages of scripture. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And based on the responses I've received from many people, that's, that was the effect. And that's only the Holy Spirit. So I, I give full and total credit to the Lord, because that, that book was beyond my ability. I am not a fiction writer. And even though the book is not fiction per se, it does have an element of storytelling in that genre. And so I was very thankful to hear the responses. But out of my whole catalog, in terms of, you know, if you think of books that authors write as children, that's my favorite child. <laughs> that's nice. No, that's good. And I mean, and obviously in, in our day, story is so powerful. Well, let's, let's move to a, a book that's actually, it's the name of one of your podcasts. Uh, it's your book, Insurgents. This is your, uh, one of your most powerful books. And again, I've personally read it and just really enjoyed it because it resonates in some ways with my own thinking about the kingdom. But what led you to write Insurgents? And, and again, this is, you've, what even led you to almost rename a podcast and launch this whole piece of your ministry? Well, I think that the message of the gospel of the kingdom, which is what Jesus called it, that phrase appears in the book of Acts. It's what the apostles preached. This gospel of the kingdom, I believe, has been lost to us. And uh, I began looking at it, not theologically so much as much as narratively, a number of years ago, and it impacted me so much that I felt like this message has to get out. And I held a conference in 2017, where I gave eight messages on the gospel of the kingdom, and the results were just astounding. I mean, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit just invaded that place. We had spontaneous baptisms. It was unbelievable and hugely humbling as well as exciting. And so that conference was going on when I was in the process of writing the book. It was not a duplicate of the book. It was a supplement to it. And so the book was born partially out of that conference. But, you know, to me, the gospel of the kingdom is the most powerful message in the New Testament in all scripture, actually. And yet, and yet, I believe that that message has been largely lost to us Christians. And it is why that we could look at 
say, radical terrorism and look at their commitment and their devotion to their cause and then compare it to the devotion and the commitment and allegiance that the typical Christian has to his faith and to the Lord Jesus. And it just pales in comparison. And I had to ask, why is that? And so basically, you know, to use a term that I think most of us would be familiar with, to become a Christian in the first century, to follow Jesus Christ, was to be radicalized to him and his cause and the kingdom. And um, I just think that, you know, the message really needs to be restored. And, and what I did, I talked about it in the, in the scribe training. I wanted to make it accessible both to academics and theologians as well as to, say, a high school student. So I tried to write it in such a way where it would grab both if they finished it, because it's six parts of it, you know, you read it, and they all do different things. And like part one may really speak to one crowd, where part three just really blows the hose off of another crowd. And then part five really ministers to another crowd. They're all different, but they're connected. If you're not pulled by part one or two, keep going, because there's a good chance you're really going to be struck by one of those. And based on the feedback I've gotten, it's probably one of the most life-changing books I've written. You know, you think six parks, it's like, holy mackerel, what a daunting book. But you do, an, you have an ingenious way that you organize this book just from a writing perspective. So talk just briefly, because you have, a, I don't know how many chapters are in there, but talk about, you know, you have six parts, like, wow, that's all going to be a long book. But how, how, what, what makes this book easy to read? I was inspired by reading Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, particularly the format. And the format was that each chapter was one to two pages long. And I love that. I loved it so much because it was so easy to read. I'm somebody who hates long chapters because I feel like I'm never going to finish. You know, when is this thing going to end? I want to go to the next chapter. So he did this thing where he wrote a chapter, one page or two pages, you know? And so I said, you know what? I'm going to organize insurgents the same way. And that's exactly what I did. I organized it into six parts, but each chapter in those parts is one to three pages long, which A, makes it accessible to everybody. B, you don't feel like you're going to read the book forever before you finish. C, it's easy to digest because I, as you know, I stop the reader in his tracks and I say, all right, you've just read this part. Now let's take action. And I give the reader actionable steps to actually live out and experience what I've just talked about in living color. And so that's where that idea came from. And that's what makes it uh, somewhat different as well. That's good. Good. And then the, the last book we want to talk about from, from your, your, your catalog was, uh, I guess it's your latest, or it's, it's the last book that you have published. I know you have other things coming down the pipe, but it's uh, Regrace that came out, what, in uh, 2019, I believe. Yeah. And the subtitle is What can the shocking beliefs of the great Christians teach us today? This is a funny book. If you have a funny bone, you have a sense of humor, you'll enjoy this book. And also, if you like history and maybe you read an old, old book that I wrote many, many years ago with George Barna called Pagan Christianity, that's a historical work too. Well, this book is history as well, but it's fascinating to me because I look at the shocking beliefs that all the great Christians held not to demean them or denigrate them, but to show that none of us see all things clearly, even the greats before us. And for that reason, we should extend grace 
to one another when we disagree theologically or doctrinally or politically, because even the greats didn't get everything right. So it's a fun book. It's a humorous book, but it makes a powerful point. To those who have read it, there are many people who've read it, it's really affected the way they interact with other Christians. I mean, there's so much vitriol and carnage and bloodletting in social media over doctrinal differences, theological differences, social differences, and political differences. And if somebody reads the book from cover to cover, I think it will change the way they interact with other believers. They will begin to re-grace, hence the title. No, that's really good. And, and, and thanks for walking through some of your, your tips and uh, just the, the journey that uh, we have, that you, you've had uh, as an author. And obviously you have a book coming out uh, well, in later 2021. And one of your things that you do is you don't like drop hints, which I think is really cool. Um, versus myself, I always drop hints about what I'm doing because I just can't, I just get so excited. I can't help share <laughs> things, which probably is confusing from a branding thing sometime, but I, I appreciate that about, uh, about you. Hey guys, this is a postscript just before you head out and we part ways. I have created a bundle of free resources. This would include my other podcasts, the YouTube channel, several free ebooks, free seminars, and other free resources. And you can find all of that at frankviola.com. And if you go to frankvella.com, you will see in the top menu a link that says free stuff. You just click on that and you will be taken to the free resources page. Also, a number of you have asked if you could donate to help defray the costs of the podcasts and also to express appreciation for the value that you've been receiving. You're under no obligation to donate. I don't ask for donations, but should you have it on your heart to do so, you can go to Frank Viola. .us. That's frankviola.us, and that will take you to a donate page. There's three different options you can use to donate, all of them simple. Thank you very much, and God bless.